For those of you regularly with us through these past three and a half, four months, this is the first scripture lesson that we've shared since September that was written after the birth of Jesus. Although you might not be able to tell by the vocabulary or the flow of the reading that something new is going on here, I'm here to tell you otherwise. This passage was written by Luke, a Gentile, from the Greek city of Antioch in present-day Syria. We also know for sure that Luke was a physician, and that in itself informs us of so much. Luke's profession rubs off on this story in indelible and significant ways. We also know, of course, that Luke also knew the story of Jesus in its entirety, from Christ's birth to his death to his resurrection. And though the topic of this passage is prelude to our celebration of Christmas, it is also a significant reading in and of itself. They say that the most difficult step of any journey is the first one. And Luke is very intentional in presenting us this first story as a way that sets up the remainder of the story of the good news of God with us. That is Emmanuel, Jesus. Now, doctors are methodical souls, often cautious and curious and always inquisitive. They want to follow a trail from beginning to end. When did you first notice the problem? Given where you are now, how did things start? How did this issue then progress? Getting a patient's history is crucial to making a correct diagnosis, which is why this is one of the first things a doctor is taught. How a doctor listens and puts the case together makes a big difference in a patient's healing. The Gospel writer Luke hears a story like a doctor listens. This is a story of salvation, which in Hebrew means healing. So it is a story about healing, about the casting out of demons, illnesses, and the restoration of all creation. It is a story about God, how things started, and where they are headed, diagnostically speaking. Luke's ordered approach to history and events, his writing style and vocabulary reveal the attention to detail of one who makes a case based on verifiable evidence. Luke is the only non-Jewish writer of a gospel, and his writing style reveals layers of sophistication that we haven't seen before. Not that they are new, but they are so carefully organized to support his central thesis. That is, that God sent Jesus at the right time in the right way, ultimately for the healing of the nations, as he puts it. So there are more healing stories in Luke than in the other Gospels. For Luke looks to Jesus as one who can summon the powers of heaven to do what the powers of earth cannot. At the very beginning of the Gospel, he describes what it is that he is trying to do. Since many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed on to us, I, too, decided, after investigating everything carefully from the very first, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the truth according to things about which you have been instructed. Now, the name Theophilus, incidentally, is literally translated as lover of God. Theophilus, lover of God. So maybe this is one of Luke's friends, or maybe this is all of us who are Luke's friends, 
and therefore also lovers of God. Luke's purpose is to set down an orderly account from a perspective that is uniquely his own. Luke then is full of stories about reconciliation and healing, and more than any other gospel writer, notices the role of women who play key roles in the community of faith. In Luke, we hear the story of the healing of the widow's son, the story of the widow's might, the woman who implores the unjust judge. And it is the women in Luke's gospel who bring the first report of the empty tomb back to the disciples who are in hiding. As a physician, Luke is also interested in delivering babies. In fact, his gospel has not just one, but two birth narratives, one about John the Baptist and one about Jesus of Nazareth. He portrays Jesus as born with Davidic birthmarks, linked to Bethlehem, the hometown of David, welcomed by the shepherds, common everyday folk. But unlike David, Jesus is the son of what is called an Anoim, a poor woman, and a father whose paternity test, delivered by an angel, puzzles not only the town gossips, but also his father. From the outset of the gospel, peace is a major theme in Luke's story. It is carefully woven in and through Luke's account. Take Zechariah's words offered as a blessing at the birth of his son John. By the tender mercy of God, the dawn from on high will break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Now, with all Luke's attention to detail, honoring women, seeking peace, pointing to Jesus' healing gifts, Luke does not ignore the drama of the political situation in which Jesus is born. Remember how it is that he describes the setting of Jesus' birth? This is where the diagnostic report gets interesting. Jesus' healing presence occurs in the midst of the collective corruption and illness of the body politic. Jesus is born during the reign of Emperor Augustus, who is fiddling with the tax laws. Quirinius was governor responsible for the census, which was a way for more taxes to be returned back to Rome. Pontius Pilate will later play a crucial role in the story. Luke also includes the names of Philip, ruler of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Annas and Caiaphas, high priests and part of an array of earthly opposition. The powers that be have metastasized, and Luke, in orderly fashion, is sure to categorize each and every presenting issue. But if there are all these complications, all these chaotic and disorderly powers set against God's power, there is also a story, an orderly account that Luke wants us to hear about a Messiah heralded by angels and predicted by prophets who would draw heaven and earth ever closer together. There's a kind of blending of heaven and earth in Luke's orderly account, a holy chemistry at work in presenting this case. Luke is the kind of doctor who you can imagine looking through a microscope who sees more than just cells, but also the hand of God and the intentions of a creator who mean well for the earth, intending goodwill for all people. Luke's message of the healing of the nations includes evidence that God goes where God is not expected. And Luke draws on well-established precedent to do so. The entire story of God's relationship to Israel, beginning with the promise of a child to aged Abraham and Sarah way back when, 
comes to a new fulfillment in this story that begins once again with a promise of a birth against all odds. Fulfillment has been a long time in coming. Israel has been through wars, captivity, exile, and domination by foreign powers, and in Luke's time is crushed by the Romans. So now the mantle of God's promise is placed on the shoulders of Zechariah, a veteran temple priest who attends his duties faithfully. When he's chosen to enter the sanctuary and perform the incense offering, his service becomes anything but ordinary. The angel Gabriel appears to him to announce that his wife Elizabeth will conceive and bear a son to be named John, who will bring them joy. Like Abraham before him, Zechariah is skeptical when he hears this promise of a newborn son. How shall I know that this is so, he asks, for I am an old man and my wife is getting on in years. And this question then results in Zechariah being rendered mute until the time that these things will be fulfilled. Perhaps not exactly the sign that Zechariah was looking for. Nevertheless, the speechless Zechariah goes home to his wife Elizabeth and she conceives. Elizabeth, like Sarah, recognizes the Lord's presence in these events. It's not until his son is born and circumcised and named that Zechariah is again able to speak. In his long silence, he's had plenty of time to consider Gabriel's words. And when he finally does speak again, the first words out of his mouth are words of faithfulness. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has looked favorably upon his people and redeemed them. These words come at a child's birth with a whole life yet to be lived. Knowing how God has proven faithful in the past, even when all hope seemed lost, builds trust in God in the present and the future. Even while Caesar and Herod ruled with iron fists, God's mercy is breaking into this world in the unlikely births of two infants in this obscure Judean village. Luke's orderly account was written against the backdrop of a world of disorder, where the balance of worldly power resided in the might of Roman legions, and justice was hard to find. It was a world where faithful people were asking questions about governance and taxes and the right thing to do. In the midst of a soulless world, Luke decided to write an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, so that we might know the truth concerning what we have been instructed. It is a story beginning in the darkness of night, when angels herald the birth of a child who will be born to save all people. This is a story that reminds us that the world is more alive with God than we might realize, and that it is often when the world seems most chaotic, and despair seems the most reasonable emotion, exactly at that time when we are ready to give up, when the worst seems to be the norm, precisely at that time is when God is most likely, as well as most needed, to come to us, and does so in a way in which the familiar is transformed into the extraordinary, even in an orderly account. It is a miraculous happening in a very ordinary way. Now, a few weeks ago, it was December 4th, it was, I watched on television, live from New York City, the lighting of the Rockefeller Center Christmas tree, 
the annual extravaganza where people from everywhere but New York City gather to watch a cavalcade of entertainers dance and sing and eventually light the Christmas tree at 30 Rock. And this year, like all the others, the tree was bigger, the lights more plentiful, the gaudy display of colors and dazzle on the surrounding buildings was more than ever before, as always happens. Except that this year I noticed something that I don't think I've ever put together in quite the same way. The stage where the entertainers were dancing and singing was at the east end of the promenade at Rockefeller Center, or so it seemed to me, rather than at the west end of the plaza where the skating and the tree are located. And if you knew what you were looking at, I mean, looking beyond the colors and the dazzle and the sprays of light that were thrown over all the buildings, when the camera gave a momentary full-screen view, you could see that the building on the left across Fifth Avenue, most distant from the tree and the skating rink and set apart from all the very expensive jewelry stores and ritzy hotels and Saks Fifth Avenue, set apart from all of them the St. Patrick's Cathedral. Silently, quietly, passively present amidst all the holly jolly Christmas being celebrated across the street. And there you begin to see it. Luke's very orderly account set over against the world's disorder, and commercial excess. Christmas expressed in two very different ways, juxtaposed on opposite sides of the avenue. On the one hand, there is the skating rink, the tree with 50,000 LED lights weighing over eight tons, seen by half a million people every day. The very epitome of the indulgence we make of Christmas, the holly jolly merry season, located among the most expensive line of stores in midtown Manhattan, celebrating all the excess and commercialism and material things that the world can offer on the one side of the street. While on the opposite side is the high altar of St. Patrick's Cathedral, where the body of Christ is broken for us day and night. Night and day. Every day. Quietly present to witness to the fact that God is quietly with us in the world there to be seen by the eyes of faith for all who look to such things, making a very orderly account of God's love for us, poured out in the cup, broken in the bread, and here for us every time and season, present in word and sacrament and prayer. Luke wanted us to have an orderly account of the work of the one who is joined with us from above, simply, quietly, with no special fanfare. God is quietly present in the life of the young man from Galilee who joins us on our way and who is also the Savior of the world. You know, I really don't think we have any idea how present God really is in this insanely hectic and rude and chaotic world. No idea whatsoever. Except when, from time to time, we pause and we look and we see, as Luke did, the one who is already here, meeting us on our way. We just need to take time and notice what is right in front of us. Thanks be to God for Christ's presence with us, now and always. Amen. Amen.